Welcome back to the In It Together self-sabotage series, where we unpack areas in our allyship, where we undermine our own commitment to justice in order to protect a false sense of psychological safety. And our topic today is relationships. Um, And before we get into it, Tamir, let's check in for a minute. There's been a lot going on and curious to know how you're doing and how you're thinking about um, what's happening in the world with regards to outlyship. Yeah, so I woke up this morning, I was reading and thinking about um, the murders that happened in Buffalo a couple days ago. And my first thought was like, 10 black people were murdered. And two weeks before that, Roe v. Wade decision leaked, right? Meaning that, you know, there are a lot of black and brown women who are going to experience really serious health impacts, wellness impacts, financial impacts, possibly death. Um, and we're talking about relationships. Like, it's like, do I even want to talk about relationships today? That there's something about that that feels really white centering. And I, I spent my whole morning sort of working through that. And I think I figured out like, what's the through line. So I'm looking forward to coming back to it from that perspective. But you know, you and I talked, we've talked over the last couple of weeks about when we as white folks feel like the world is on fire and the fire that's burning all the time that we are mostly insulated from the heat and smoke of. Um, And like, if we were holding that more closely, like if we felt in our bodies, what people of color feel in their bodies, when these things happen, how much more radical would our action be? What would we give up without a second thought? What conversations would we not even waste time having? Um, And, you know, that's just on my mind. How about Mm you? Yeah. I mean, I resonate with all of that. I, yeah, I've felt deeply sad. I feel like I've been in a, um, a state of deep grief over the last day or so since I heard about the, yeah, racist genocidal murder spree in Buffalo. Um, and yeah, I've also been thinking because, uh, like you said, the road decision leaking, thinking about this question that Ijeoma Luo put really succinctly of what is vi- what is vital to your survival. So she sends out an amazing um, newsletter every week or so to, to readers. And that was the title of her last one. And we can link it, share it wherever we, we share things to mirror. Um, but it was really asking that question that you just named of like, what's what is actually vital to how we move through the world and to how we survive in the world versus what's just nice to have, or like would be, would be nice if we're true. And I feel like, yeah. um, I think the leak of Roe really for many white folks and definitely for many white women um, cut really close to what is vital to our survival. Um, And Exactly as you said, you know these these are issues sp- reproductive justice specifically and black maternal health. You know, I mean, black maternal health broadly um, are issues that black women and people of color and uh, who are birthing folks um, have been dealing with for a really long time that have felt vital to the survival of white women, a lot of white women. Um, do you want to, <laughs> you look like you were going to say something. I was just, I, I was just a sigh. Like that's me feeling what you're saying. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the ability of Black folks to go into grocery stores and to be able to do their shopping feels really vital to my survival. And I think that's why, um, one reason why that's hitting me so hard is that Mm -hmm. it feels like uh, such a basic, a basic right, obviously, and a basic, um, way in which I want our society to work where that, you know, people of color can feel safe and be assured of their physical safety, um, in the comings and goings of their days. And yeah, it's just, um, yeah, I think like many people have said, like, none of this is surprising. None of, yeah, this violence is surprising. Um, and I still feel really heartbroken by it. And, um, yeah, I've been, just kind of grieving what is this last day or so. Yeah. um, I've been sitting with that article since you sent it to me and it really hit home for me that the murderer in this case um, subscribed to replacement theory, which I had known for a long time as an anti-Semitic theory and there's still deep roots of anti-Semitism in it. Um, the white nationalists who marched in Charlotte were chanting, Jews will not replace us. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm uh, Ashkenazi Jewish descent, um, and most of my father's family was wiped out uh, in Europe in the 40s. And so it's a reminder that whiteness, like racial hierarchy, can shift at any time to serve the interests of those who have the greatest stake in preserving it. Yeah. Um, and you know the fact that I've grown up not in childhood, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in my childhood, like violent anti-Semitism in some cases, but like um, that my assimilation into whiteness, um, which was very much supported by the nonprofit industrial complex and institutional mm-hmm. philanthropy is temporary and can be revoked at any time. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I think about the folks who this murderer represents, right? who Mm. our last president called very fine people. Mm. But I think of Stephen Miller, who is a Jew, who had deep influence in the last White House. Um, It's terrifying. Like we may not, you know, a lot of folks are saying like never again is right now. Mm. And there's a a lot to that. Mm. Um, Mm. So I continue to sit with like, you know, what are we going to sort of overturn the table? You know, they go like Jesus with the money changers. Like when do we throw the table over? And when are we just trying to like move things forward in our everyday lives in ways mm-hmm. that like reduce the suffering of people around us or try to affect the place where we are right now, as opposed to like my whole life has to change and I'm all in on revolution kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. All of that resonates and thanks for bringing kind of, yeah, the, the question of, yeah, how whiteness is is weaponized really and how yeah who gets to be white is weaponized sometimes against other white people like just like you were saying um yeah i I find myself in this last day or i found i think maybe a little less today but yesterday like really kind of despairing and really just in this place of despair and i imagine folks who are listening there may be other folks who feel that way too. And just like, how do we move forward? Like, how do we, like, we as white people, as white people who, you know, hopefully, yeah, great many of us believe that 
the freedom and the safety of people of color is vital to our survival, how do we move forward in the world and how do we change what is? Um, and I got to say, yesterday I was really in this just deep despairing place of like, I don't know. I don't know how to move forward. Like, I don't know what's possible. I don't know, you know, I had a client reach out to me yesterday. It was a white woman and, mm -hmm. and kind of ask like, you know, what do we do? What do we do mm -hmm. in my workplace? And I haven't written back to her. Like, I just mm -hmm. felt like kind of at a loss and, um, yeah, I guess I'm curious. <laughs> Tamir, tell me what to do. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, I just, I don't know if, if you felt that way too, or, or how you have moved through despair when despair has shown up for you. You know, funny, uh, most of the time in the past, my response to despair has been to compartmentalize mm. and sort of be like, yeah, I know these things are happening and I know they're fucked up. Um, but to sort of like close a shutter to prevent the full impact of them on a human level from being felt so yeah. that I could focus on whatever I was doing. Right. And that, yeah. that's a, that's probably a trauma response, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. but I, I think I've moving away from that and really feeling a pull toward rigor. And I remember that, you know, it's like for white folks, we're sort of able because of our privilege to move in and out of an awareness of how violent on a regular basis these systems are and like vacillate between like a deep visceral knowledge of that mm -hmm. and an intellectual knowledge of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of our, a lot of our comrades don't have that luxury. Um, mm -hmm. And nonetheless, they have been organizing for centuries, for generations, right? Um, and these systems have been built up over hundreds of years. They have adapted over hundreds of years. And so, you know, we can't, maybe there's a world in which we can just sort of, everybody throws the table over at the same time and that's it. But I don't think it works that way. If there were a revolution tomorrow, right? What's the system we're building in its place? A core part of that would be relationships, right? The thing we came to talk about today and like, we can't build movement momentum, without being in right relationship with each other. So I think on one level, it's like, okay, where can we exercise our discernment and like how we show up in a moment, right? Mm -hmm. Where things are particularly alive, hurtful. And then what are we going to continue to build and how do we use that to recommit ourselves to rigor around what we're building and scrutinizing our own motivation so that we know that we're acting in rigor. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, those are good reminders. Thank you for just the reminders of like, yeah, there's, there's building that has been happening, um, that yeah, we can plug into and yeah, just the reminder that change never happens all at once it happens in little bits over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for what it's worth, like you've been moving people into that change for a mm -hmm. long time, mm -hmm. right? There, there are more people in this work who are actively seeking to dismantle white supremacy, like because of you. Mm -hmm. Mm. I don't feel like I sit with that very often. So thank you for that kind of just gift to reflect on that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a special thing. Thank you. So how do we want to honor all of this in our conversation today? Mm. I think it would feel good to, yeah, to focus on like how, 
relationships and how being in right relationship in our allyship work like moves the world forward (laughs) moves us to a place that we are not in now moves us to a more liberated place so that yeah yeah, that feels like the connection and like what would honor I don't know at least how I'm feeling around like how do we how do we be in a different place together um yeah yeah what do you think I, I agree. And I think there's there's two ways to sort of center the conversation. There's a version of the conversation and the issue that centers whiteness, right? Which is like, I want to be in deep, really, like intimate relationships with people of color mm. because the idea that that's not possible makes me feel bad, right? Mm. And like, there's real grief there. Like when sure. it was a process for me and continues to be something I struggle with around like the, the fact that relationships even within and across different parts of the racial hierarchy cannot be like truly authentic without accounting for those dynamics in some way. Yeah. Right. And there's a way of centering whiteness in that by denying that those dynamics are there and assuming that our relationships with people of color are better than they actually are. Sure. Right. And then thinking that we're allies, maybe because we have white friends or, you know, respected by my colleagues, whatever. And then there's like, right relationship is essential to dismantling white supremacy. Mm. If we are in active conflict with the people we're organizing with, Mm. if we are not in alignment, if we're not honoring each other's humanity, how do we win? Mm. Yeah. That's, that's the piece that, that I want to, was alluding to wanting to honor. Like, how do we move forward together? Not for the sake of like, I'm an individual good white ally. <laughs> like yeah. I want us to just all get along, <laughs> to all get along copacetically um, across race. Um, but like, how do we actually build the kind of relationships that move the world forward, that move move us closer to liberation? And yeah. So maybe this is a good time for us to talk about the sort of white centering and or self-sabotaging part of this. Sure. Right? We're like yeah. in, in this series, we name these self-sabotaging questions. And the question this time is like, how do I know my relationships with people of color are are real Mm. Mm. and that they're not just placating me as part of a survival strategy. So like the question is self-sabotaging. The way that we have identified self-sabotaging questions is that like, there's no answer that sticks around long enough to actually like resolve the question. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's a deep personal stake in the answer that like, if the answer is the one you don't like, it means you're a bad person. Yep. And like flaming human garbage and, you know, don't deserve to breathe air and like mm-hmm. just an agent of harm. Um, and while you are reckoning with this question, you can't take action. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, and this particular formulation of the question, it's worth noting what, when it was first written, we wrote it specifically for people who are working, white people working in white dominant organizations who have some level of consciousness of like what their relationships are with people of color in their organization, attempting to practice allyship in that organization yeah, and really not being sure if they're being effective. Mm. Um, but I think the way that it centers whiteness is that it's about me. It's about my relationships, right? Mm. It's not like what is the role of relationships in dismantling white supremacy, which is a rigorous question. What do we even yeah. mean by relationship? What yeah. different types of relationships can I be in? But it's like my need to be liked or affirmed as a good person, which is 
it's a human need. It's a legitimate human need, right? Yeah. But when that starts to outweigh our focus on shifting conditions and dismantling systems, we're centering ourselves. Yep. Yeah, that's right on. I know you've done you've done quite a bit of organizing in different contexts and like talk to me about kind of the importance of relationships in like the organizing you've done and allyship work more broadly. Yeah, so I want to start with political home, right? Mm. When I think about the places that have meant the most to me in like my own development as like a political agent and a human being, I think of uh, Change Philanthropy, which is a coalition of issue-based and identity-based groups that are working to basically shift philanthropy to fund justice. Mm. And I was part of a group of CEOs who made up the steering committee of that group and sort of the executive committee. Mm. And that group held space for me in a way that I hadn't experienced before that, mm-hmm. both as an agent of change who was worth investing in and as a human being, right? And like that space gave me frameworks to understand my own trauma, which even now I sometimes like forget how much of it is also rooted in hierarchies of human value. Like there is serious generational trauma on both sides of my family from anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. and let alone like what my people are causing now in Israel where I was born. Mm. Um, and it just, it meant so much to me that those folks were looking out for me, but also like we were working together, we were humans and we were acting to affect systemic change. And we held both of those things in balance. And that's been my model for solidarity ever since. Mm. Um, and that to me is like an example of how we want to live in a liberated world. Right? Mm. or a world that is actively in the process of liberating itself. Mm. Um, and that's important. And like, yeah, on a human level, you know, I want to know that like I'm not imparting toxic whiteness on people in my life, that I'm not like sort of overvesting relationships mm. with my own need for affirmation as an ally. So like people I'm not in struggle with, like that I'm not sort of putting stuff about racial equity and systems of oppression into that relationship in ways that the people I'm in relationship with don't necessarily want. Mm, Gotcha. Um, Or just that like I'm being awkward, you know, I don't want to be awkward. I don't want to like, yeah, on a basic level, I just want to know that like I'm being good to the people in my life and that Mm. I'm not like putting stuff on them. That's not theirs. Mm, I love that. A lot of my relationships in this work have been, I mean, obviously relationships with other white people, um, but mm-hmm. relationships, working relationships with people of color as fellow facilitators, as fellow coaches, as fellow consultants. Um, and when I worked for nonprofits, just as, as colleagues, as my coworkers. Um, and um, I feel like what comes up for me when I think about all of these relationships is like the fact that relationships are living things, like that they're not these static things, they grow, they change, like, just because, you know, we're doing something one way in a relationship doesn't mean we need to keep doing it if someone's needs or capacity change. Um, and that allyship itself is a relationship, um, even if it's not a direct interpersonal one. I think about, you know, the ways that I that I distribute and move money into exactly, you know, exactly what you're talking about in philanthropy into organizations led and serving, led by and serving people of color. Um, And when I move money that way, like I'm in a relationship with those organizations, right? They may not be like direct relationships in terms of like interactive interpersonal ones, but like 
that a relationship exists there. Um, so yeah, so I guess what comes up for me is like thinking about how, yeah, relationships move and change. They exist on different levels and different degrees of interpersonal connection. Um, and yeah, the, the kind of energy that we bring to relationships really matters. Like if I show up to any of these relationships holding resentment or insecurity or joy or gratitude, like these feelings and all of that energy is going to show up in my relationship. So yeah. Hmm. Mm -hmm. We've talked about, we've talked about two different ways that um, white folks can sort of pollute our relationships with people of color. One sort of denying that systems of oppression impact our relationships and change Mm -hmm. the impact of our behavior in relationships. And then there's like, what a lot of us do when we're conscious of that, right? And we're actively trying to counter it, where sort of our our overvesting or like our our like subconscious needs are getting in the way of our commitment to really practicing solidarity in those relationships. What are some of the behaviors that you see us doing um, that we've definitely both done <laughs> <laughs> in our in our relationships with people of color? Yeah. Well, definitely that affirmation seeking behavior, which we've both spoken to, like where we put people of color in positions where they have to affirm us as one of the quote unquote, good white people. Um, which is a way that we as white people can like exceptionalize ourselves or differentiate ourselves from other, i.e. not as good or bad white people. Um, so like signaling that, that, you know, we're better in some way, which can make it really awkward and uncomfortable for people of color to give us feedback or to hold us accountable when we've um, sought affirmation about being like the good white people. Um, Other things like we can kind of over signal our allyship through over the top behavior. We can, that can look like coming down really hard on other white people, coming down really hard on ourselves, kind of making ourselves like a martyr in relationships which again is like another form of kind of exceptionalism or being different from other white people. Um, even if that exceptionalism is like, oh my God, I feel so much worse than other white people. Like, I'm so much more of a martyr, you know, like I'm so sorry or whatever. Yeah. And I know in other times, like we can show up with just so much anxiety or fear about causing harm to people of color that we don't speak up at all, or we avoid relationships or interactions with people of color for fear of, you know, saying or doing the wrong thing. And yeah, that like good, bad binary, that right, wrong binary, I think really, really bites us there (laughs) that there's like right thing we can say or right thing we can do or wrong thing we can say or do, which we know isn't true. And we also know that like, there are definitely things we can say and do that cause harm. And there are things we can say or do that, you know, build other folks up or deepen a relationship. Um, but yeah, that anxiety shows up that fear. Um, and we can 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 say something about that real quick. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I'm just thinking about what it might be like if I were a person of color and it's like, you know, the second I like see a white person across from me, like at like an event or like someone who's like trying to build a relationship with me. It's like, can I like see that? Like, are we that transparent that like, we're like, oh boy, here comes another one. Um, (laughs) It's like how much work it must be to like handle all of that when people of color talk to us about endurance and what it takes to actually like exist in the world, let alone like try to shift these systems, having to like deal with this from people mm. who, who insist that they're in your corner. What a pain. What a pain we can be. <laughs> what a pain in the ass we can yeah. be. Oh, 
And like another way that I feel like we can get big pain in the ass is uh, by by disregarding (laughs) people of color's boundaries um, in an attempt to build a relationship, the kind of relationship that they may not necessarily want and that may not be necessary for Mm -hmm. the, the work or the common task that we are working on together. And I know you have an example of this too, Tamir, that you might want to share. I do. So, um, in my first job out of grad school, um, I had had, um, like there was somebody on the team who was junior to me, who was a white woman who like, I had a really good mentoring relationship with, and then she left. And, um, there was a woman of color who came into the job who, um, I did not realize had no interest Mm. in that kind of mentoring relationship. And so I thought I was like being a great, like senior person, like being helpful. And then one day she just like, she was like, you know what? You're being really condescending. Mm, I never asked for damn. any of this and I don't want it. And the the worst part about that, like, I mean, obviously I felt like shit, but like, I don't actually know why she left the organization, mm. but I don't think we handled that well, like as an organization. Like, I think, I don't know. I would have to ask her and unfortunately we don't really talk, but like. That I'm I'm guessing that there was a lot that happened after that and like other ways in which she was resisting white dominant culture mm-hmm. in the organization where mm-hmm. she was punished for doing that. And that's fucked up. And like, you know, I, I didn't move up much after that in that job, but I did go on to be an ED in another organization mm-hmm. and she's doing great now, but mm-hmm. like that must have fucked with her career. And like that's fucked up. And those are like not only are these things that create emotional labor for people of color, but it can also have directly adverse impacts like in material ways, like opportunities to mm-hmm. um, advance professionally, being punished for speaking out. Like, and this is part of how like this particular thing plays Ooh. into dynamics of oppression. Yeah, that pervade thank you our for spaces. naming the consequences to folks of color in this. I think that's obviously such an important piece um, that we don't want to gloss over. Like, um, only focus on you know what it what it is like to be a white person in these situations. Um, can I move us to? you know, our self-sabotaging question. So the question again was, how do I know that my relationships with people of color are real and they're not just placating me Mm -hmm. as part of a survival strategy? And again, if we look at the question with that, that rubric we introduced earlier for what constitutes a self-sabotaging question, it's so broad that it's unanswerable. I think this question Mm. might actually be answerable. Um, so, but it can feel unanswerable when we process it that way and that's immobilizing um it feels like your worth as a human is like at stake in the outcome and if it wrong mm. if it, if you're wrong it means you're unworthy and the answer doesn't help you engage in more impactful action for justice and I'm really looking at this again it's weird it's like almost the way that i receive the question like in my body or psychologically affects how answerable it is and whether it can help me engage in action because like there are like partial answers to this question that can help me be a better ally. And we're going to talk about those. So I don't want to move us too far ahead, but like maybe in this case, I'm wondering if it's the question that's self-sabotaging or if it's like my habitual pattern of response Hmm. in the past that has been self-sabotaging. How do you think you could, would be able to tell the difference? Um, I don't know. I don't know how I would. Yeah. So if I can skip ahead in our plan a little bit. So like, I, I, we've said this, we've said this already, there's different ways to say it, but like 
I don't, I don't think it's possible for relationships, particularly like, I don't know if it's true even within racial groups, but across like groups of racial identity, I don't know that it's possible to have an authentic relationship that does not acknowledge and seek to account for dynamics of oppression, power, and privilege in some meaningful way. Right. And if, if there's one thing I've learned in my work in the nonprofit and philanthropic world is that, um, a lot of people of color have very well-developed survival strategies around mm. making white people feel like things are okay, whether or not they are, and around learning not to experience, not to sort of file harm mm. in their mental filing system as such, because it's not mm. always possible to confront that in a way that is safe, right? And so like it, people come into work with conditioned responses. If we're talking about nonprofits and stuff, like people come into the settings that they inhabit with conditioned responses that are influenced by white supremacy and other systems of oppression. So it is likely that even with people who really care about me, I'll give you an example, right? So like, um, so my colleague who I do a lot of work with, um, she identifies as API um, and she has a a habit of Mm. always like tending to me first, Mm. even when she's suffering. And so I have to be like, dude, Mm. I'm like, we can Mm. get to me. Can we please talk about you? Mm. And that's such deep conditioning particularly for women of color, right? Being conditioned to like enforced to be in the role of caretaker, even when they're being harmed by the same people who they're supposed to be taking care of, right? That doesn't just go away because I'm different, quote unquote, right? So like, to me, that is an answerable question. Like Mm. probably yes, on some level, like probably most people of color in my life at some point have done something consciously or not to like Mm. maybe smooth over a bump or something. Um, because that's yeah. how this world is wired to function, but that well, so doesn't mean that the relationship's not real. That's where I feel like this real. question, as we've offered it, actually kind of gets us into trouble. There are parts that we're not into trouble, but like there are parts of it that are rigorous and answerable and parts of it that aren't like that latter half of they're not just placating me as part of a survival strategy. Well, they probably are, you know, like, like, yeah, knowingly, unknowingly, yeah. intentionally, unintentionally probably have done that. I think the first part feels unanswerable specifically because of the scope of it. Like all of my relationships, how do I know that all of my relationships with people of color are real? Like Hmm. my coworker, my sister-in-law, you know, whoever, like, like I can't, I can't Hmm. account for all of that broadness in one answer. But if I hone in on a specific relationship, I think I, and look at, yeah, and ask some mm-hmm. different questions, some more rigorous questions. I can get to the bottom of that, I think. I think. Yeah. And on some level, like if we if we hold some awareness in our psyches and our bodies of how dynamics of oppression yeah. operate, we can actually notice when dynamics are playing out in our relationships, or at least make space for that where that's appropriate to actually mm. ask, like, hey, can we mm. talk about something mm. real quick? Because this feels weird. Um the other thing is like, it's a testament to the power of white fragility that anytime we feel like, and this is we, I say we, I mean me, right? Like anytime, you know, I, I, I start to get a, a, an inkling that somebody is doing this, it can send me into a spiral of fragility where it's like, oh, I'm, mm. I'm being handled. Like, what am I doing wrong? Mm. Right. I must be bad. And like, there is a, there's like a muscle that I'm building there around like, just being like, yeah, that's the water we swim in. But I don't have to like always break that down. Yeah. I don't even always have to name it in the moment in order to do the work that I'm in a particular space mm. or in a particular relationship yep. to do. Yep. Yeah. <sighs> Do 
do we want to, I'm not quite sure where to pivot. Like, do we want to pivot into the fear of the narrative that kind of underlies that question? I feel like we're like calling the question into question. <laughs> so. I mean, okay. I, I feel like we've kind of covered it. Like the, the one thing we haven't, there's like the extreme, mm. like inner critic brain mm. weasel narrative of it. I feel like we've kind of named it. Maybe the part that we haven't named is like, this question yeah. means I can't actually trust any of my relationships. And that's like a deeply, I don't know if you want to speak to this more. It's yeah. like a deeply destabilizing Yeah, I, mean, I think it does make sense in. to talk about that like this question has a lot of fear underneath it. Like, so there's the fear that we've talked about of if my relationships with people of color aren't real, then it must mean I'm a bad ally, therefore a bad person, therefore a bad white person. Um, I'm just part of the problem. But then there is this kind of deeper kind of gaslighting fear <laughs> of I can't trust my perceptions of my own relationships. I can't trust anything I think, believe, perceive. If I can't trust the people of color I'm in relationships with, how vulnerable can I be in those relationships? Like, how do I know if I'm oversharing or like, you know, showing up in ways that are inappropriate? Um, yeah, which is like a, that's, I feel like that's a deep, <laughs> I don't know, like that, that's a deep fear and like maybe not a fear that white people grapple with every day, but I feel like if you get into kind of a, a tailspin of anxiety, like it can take you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And like, there have definitely been times in my work and my career where mm-hmm. I have felt that way and been in that spiral because I, you know, yeah. I was called in or called out for causing harm and like, it was appropriate to be there because mm-hmm. my relationships were not what I thought they were. And I think this is, this is kind of like, we talk about swapping these self-sabotaging questions for rigor and like, I think in some ways, maybe all the self-sabotaging questions that we're dealing with are rooted in, it's like some level of non-acceptance of how pervasive mm. white dominant culture and white supremacy are, that it does pervade mm. everything we do. It pervades our relationships. It pervades how we, per- how we perceive ourselves. I'm trying to think it pervades how we understand our role mm. in making change, our leadership, what our careers look like, how we make money. And like, you know, I think about like radical acceptance. Like if we just accept that it pervades everything rather than being afraid that the answer is yes, we can be like, mm-hmm. probably, mm-hmm. what are we going to do about it? That's where I want to go. Right. Cause like we just waste. So I have wasted so much energy rec- wrestling mm. with these questions instead of doing Ugh. better work. Yeah. <laughs> that hits, that hits for me. And I think we'll hit for a lot of folks who are listening. Yeah. Yeah. So what does rigor look like for you in this practice? Well, I think, yeah, I know we've come up with kind of a more rigorous question, which is how can I be in authentic relationships with the people of color in my life while honoring the context? And that context includes global settler colonialism, white supremacy, um, in which our relationship is being forged. And, and I would say, yeah, kind of looking at specific individual relationships is one way to do that as opposed to all of the relationships in my life with people of color. Um, I think for me, if I want to be in authentic relationships with people of color in my life, I've got to show up authentically in whatever ways that looks like for me. Um, for me, showing up authentically often looks like being vulnerable. Um, it looks like 
making mistakes, owning those mistakes, making amends, practicing accountability for those mistakes. Um, it looks like sharing honestly, even when my perspective is, you know, counter to the norm or counter to the, what the person of color I'm talking with is, you know, holding, um, it, yeah, it's not just agreeing with everything <laughs> that they say or like kind of placating, you know, it's like treating the people of color as they deserve to be treated as full whole human beings and not just tokens that I'm um, putting on a pedestal in different ways. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can we pause on that for a second? Cause that is a whole thing. And like, I think it, it might've been Ijomo Luo. It might've been Austin Channing Brown. I forget who it was, but somebody was talking recently about how black women in particular mm. are often sort of treated as oracles in a moment of crisis and then ignored the rest of the time. I might be, I might be getting the exact substance of the quote wrong, but definitely the piece about oracles. And it's like, when you put everyday people in your life in the position where they have to be the carriers of truth, like yeah. all the time, how do you function like that? How do you function like that? And like, that's tricky because we also mm -hmm. talk about centering people most affected. And so there's like, there's a nuance there between like, how do you follow the leadership of people who are actively leading on issues, which is different from like the woman of color in your office and like looking to her for moral leadership, you know, on a thing mm -hmm. that may or may not mm -hmm. even be the focus of their work. Yeah. yeah. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> What does being in authentic relationships with people of color look like for you while honoring the context? You know, I appreciate the question. And in some ways it's like, when I hear you ask it, I'm like, I can only imagine like if somebody, if a person of color were listening to this being like, mm -hmm. that's a question they have to ask. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> like, because <laughs> uh, like, it, it, it feels like, mm. it feels simple to me right now because we spent a lot of time thinking about this question, but it's literally what I said before. It's like just accepting that there's no quarter of life mm -hmm. that systems of oppression do not pervade. And like being able to hold multiple truths at the same time. Like I value authentic yeah. relationships. I respect boundaries, right? I've, I am training myself to attend to and attune to the boundaries that people express and to learn to discern the ones mm -hmm. where I can be like, Hey, can I ask you about that? Versus the ones where you're like, okay, I'm just going to not touch that right now because it, one, it's not necessary. And two, like, mm. I think that would be disrespectful. Um, and just being, being smart about like, what kind of relationship do I need to be in with this person or this particular group of people, right? Like if I, let's say I'm at work and I'm trying to like shift conditions at work, I don't necessarily need to be close friends with all the people of color mm. in my office, especially if I've been causing them harm in order to shift mm. conditions, I can just change my behavior or I can say like, Hey, can we look at this mm. policy? Because that doesn't look right. Um, you know, and like that may bring me into closer relationship with people who feel like they appreciate the way I'm showing up. And there's nuance in that too, because I also like, I don't want to overwrite or override organizing mm. that people of color in a space may be doing. Um, but mm -hmm. that I can ask, or I can just pay attention. Right? Like, what is the organizing that's happening in the space that I'm in? How can I be in solidarity with that? What can I do on my own outside of that? Mm -hmm. And not putting work where it doesn't belong, it, to me, is part of being, it's almost like the negative space in a relationship. Like, I want to discern, 
like what parts of me or what work I need to bring into a certain space and mm. what needs to live somewhere else. That's a muscle that I'm building now is what I used to do until recently was like, it was hard for me sometimes to like not have some of my own, per like the detritus of my own, like personal trauma and healing needs not show up in spaces in mm. ways that were not that particular mm. spaces to hold. And like, now I'm getting better at separating the two. Mm -hmm. It's just yeah. like, it's a muscle. Yeah. Oh, it's so funny. You started out by saying like, you feel like it's really simple, but what you just unpacked has a lot of nuance to it. <laughs> like you said, like it's got some nuance to it. Like, yep. yeah, it's simple <laughs> on the surface. We just show up authentically. We just show up as ourselves or whatever, but like, yeah, yeah. Holding multiple truths, holding that there's context that folks are coming with, holding that we don't have to be best friends to move the work forward, holding that sometimes the best thing for me. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I would say as a white person is to like, give people of color a lot of space, you know, like is to not be in like super close yeah. relationship if that's not what is desired. And I think I err on the, the, yeah. the side of like, that's probably not desired. And like, that's, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. But I want to say something about showing up authentically too, because there's a way that white people show up authentically that is absolutely not allowed in white dominant spaces for people of color. Right. And like, we are allowed to be leaky in ways that other people are not. We are allowed to make mistakes in ways that other people are not and often rewarded in mm -hmm. that for being vulnerable. That has been true for me. Like I've been praised for my mm -hmm. vulnerability throughout my, my career. And there's parts of that that I think are genuinely powerful and working mm -hmm. in service to dismantling systems of oppression. And there are parts mm -hmm. of that, that I think are white culture. Um, and like, it would be beautiful if there was more space for all of us to do that. But also like I'm thinking of in Tanya Lee, uh, another essay from holding change, uh, where, where, uh, they and Adrienne Brown mm -hmm. talk about discernment, right? Like what is ours to hold? What is in other spaces to hold? And like showing up authentically doesn't mean yes. showing up yes. unregulated. Oh, I'm so glad you pointed out that piece around how like for like, cause I, I said for me showing up authentically is being vulnerable, making mistakes, whatever, but I'm not, people of color are not given the same grace as I am in most situations around showing up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Being vulnerable, making mistakes. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like the tension I feel there is like, as a white person, if I can like, if I can show up in that way that I think that has the potential to change the culture of a group or the culture of a space, right. And might make it more acceptable mm -hmm. for people of color to show up in those ways too. <sighs> yeah. There feels like there's a, a both and for me in that one. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is. And there's a lot to unpack around how we build spaces where everyone can really do that. Yeah. It's like a whole, it's a whole body of work. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a whole lot of ways that white, dominant space operates and conditions people that needs to be like scrutinized and challenged. <laughs> we're, we're starting to get short on time. Actually, this is going to be our longest episode by a wide margin. Um, so there, there are a couple of things uh, I, I want to make sure each of us has a chance to, to share any closing thoughts on this topic. Um, we were going to check in on our action commitments from last time. Um, and then we were, um, yeah, we're going to talk about yes, moving yes, money. Yes. Oh, I feel like this episode in some ways is leaving with me with more questions, which is not a bad thing, but like more questions than answers specifically around the, mm -hmm. 
how do we show up authentically and how are the ways that I show up authentically different from the ways that people of color show up authentically? And like, where's the like, not the vent, almost like the Venn diagram center, like where's the over, you know, how do those, how do these, how do different versions of authenticity um, come together and like work together for the purpose of, you know, moving mm-hmm. work forward, moving ideally racial justice work forward. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what I'm sitting with right now. More, <laughs> more questions than answers. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm coming away and maybe this is just like where I'm at today. Like I'm in maybe a certain mood or something, but like, yes, the practice of mm-hmm. right relationship is deeply nuanced, but I think there's also something really grounding about just being clear that white supremacy pervades all aspects of yeah. our lives, including our relationships. Mm. And like, there's grief in that and that's healthy. Um, and that allows me to be much less anxious about the impacts that I'm having on folks and instead make space for those impacts to be named and addressed when yes. they happen, because they always yeah. will. And that like taking the opportunities to ask for feedback, to demonstrate you want feedback, to take it, to apply it like that. That's what comes up for me there too. Yeah. And also to like, maybe not always need to ask for feedback because I can say like, Hey, there's a dynamic here that I want to check in about. Maybe that's what you mean by asking for feedback, right? We're like, I'm not asking them to do the analysis as part of the feedback, but I'm like offering Mm -hmm. an analysis for like, (laughs) yes, no amendment. Right. Like, is this coming up for you? Is this an issue for you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely thinking about like capital F feedback and small F feedback, (laughs) like kind of the, you know, feedback in Mm. formal ways, in direct ways and in like the discerning ways and the, in the, like, what is, what is the nonverbal feedback I'm getting? You know, what is the, like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, are we ready to go to our accountability (laughs) check-ins? So we were, we were both um, looking mm-hmm. to take action to plug in more locally over the last month or so. Um, I can share first or can ask you how it's going for well, you. Well, I haven't you done do? it, Tamir. I haven't done it, <laughs> which, dang, I, I don't love that, that I'm admitting this <laughs> in a public, a public forum. Um, it was a thing that got pushed on my calendar. Like I moved it from day to week to whatever. And I was going to do mm-hmm. it yesterday because I knew we were going to record this episode today and wanted to have my, my work done. Um, mm-hmm. And then didn't do it yesterday. It was like in, in my grief yesterday. Um, so it's not going well. <laughs> hmm. What do you Ugh. need to carry through that I don't intention? No, because I thought that this would be enough for me to carry through on this intention. Um, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I will say that like being in the grief that I have been in the past couple of days around Buffalo, like has, I know that the best way to move myself through grief is to take action, is to plug in um, and to not be immobilized by that grief. Mm-hmm. So I'm feeling a more pressing need to plug in. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So um, in the next episode, Allison and I were planning to coach me around this question. 
I think I'm, I'm doing some, and I think what I'm coming to terms with is that I just have to be much more persistent here in order to be plugged in. So I'm taking that with me and it's part of like just bringing a different level of rigor mm. and building my mm. endurance for this mm. work. Yeah. I want to, I, I want to see this action through. I want to see this commitment through of like, yeah, where to plug in more deeply yeah. and it's like, yeah, I think it is relatively easy to plug in here, um, in the Bay area. So I don't have, <laughs> I don't have the same yeah. obstacles I think that you're facing. Yeah. But mm -hmm. I, I really do want to unpack this more mm -hmm. in part because it's really action oriented in a way that our last couple of conversations mm -hmm. have been like sort of adjacent to action. Cause like there's real yeah. stuff around like why we yeah. don't just do it. Right. Like that's part of, I think what's so frustrating for people who are watching white folks, like mm -hmm. sort of wring our hands. It's like, there's so much you can do. What the hell yeah. is stopping you internally a lot. So like, maybe we coach each other. Maybe we do like, um, a, you know, kind of mini coaching of each other around this. Cause I feel like we've got yeah. like different, We've got different enough I would be obstacles, I think, and context. Like it could be interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited for that. So listeners, we did this last time. Um, Want to give you an opportunity to make an action commitment to yourself. What's something that you can do between now and our next episode to show up in a different way in mm -hmm. your racial justice work? Um, and as part of that, we talk about moving money, which is definitely one of the things we can do. And I'm looking down because I'm looking for my Instagram because Serge had, I know you mm -hmm. posted earlier today, a list of organizations in Buffalo. So maybe, maybe what we can say is look mm. to the Instagram of in it together allies. And we're going to post that list, um, from Allison's Instagram, take a look at the organizations, move money. If you can, I just want to say like, even if it's a small amount of money, like when groups are confronting, like a crisis in their community like this, an influx of money, even in small dollar donations can make a big difference in supporting organizing. Even if it's like stuff like, you know, getting food for people who are at actions or, um, providing support to families that are directly impacted. Like, even if it's not a recurring commitment, cause you know, it's hard to sustain that every time something happens, like even a one-time seemingly small donation can make a big difference. Maybe mm -hmm. that's my second action commitment is I'm committing to, to, to move a, amount of money that I can hold, um, mm, mm. to one of these organizations. I love, that. I love that. And I will join you in that commitment. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, that wraps up today's episode of in it together, a podcast for white allies. If the show is resonating with you, please like, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. You can support the show on coffee at ko-fi.com slash in it together allies. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at in it together allies and on Twitter as in it together pod. That's it for today. See you next time. Thanks for listening.